to Aluja Lab. rigid, marching forward in a straight line, but on an island where the waves lap at the edges and days blur together. Time seems to slip through our fingers like grains of sand on the shore, meandering through memories and dreams. You know how laughter with an old friend can make hours feel like minutes, or how each ticking second at the DMV feels like an eternity. Time is slippery. We promise ourselves to hold on to it, to cherish it, but it trickles away. And in the end, it's too late. There was an island, both about 2,700 miles west of Honolulu and east of Manila, deep in the Pacific Ocean, part of an Awitak Atoll. A string of about 40 sandy, low-lying coral islands laced like pearls around a deep lagoon, covering an area of roughly 470 square miles. Alujalab sat at the northern tip of the atoll. We're told it was an unremarkable mode of land, about 45 acres in size. I'd like to focus on one particular day in this one particular seemingly unremarkable island's history. It's last day. November 1st, 1952. A stern-looking Major General P.W. Clarkson addresses camera. Within recent months, the Atomic Energy Commission and the Department of Defense have conducted the important test of an experimental device leading to the development of a very large yield weapon. These constituted Operation Ivy. The report of these accomplishments is about to be presented in film form. I invite you to observe Operation Ivy, carried out on our Pacific Proving Ground, Aniwitak Atoll. Operation Ivy. It is a remarkable film part industrial, part educational, part propaganda piece, and part documentary, created by the U.S. government to detail the extraordinary historical event that took place at Inuitok. It's been sanitized for public viewing. It begins with scenic images of the Coral Atoll, tranquil beaches and rolling waves. Our pipe-smoking host, Reed Hadley, stands on the deck of a Navy command ship. He leads us through the event with narration, interviews with military personnel and scientists, as well as candid pieces directly to camera. The filmmaker in me wonders how much of it is real, how many takes each scene took, if there was someone standing behind the camera with giant cue cards. If everything goes according to plan, we'll soon see the largest explosion ever set off on the face of the Earth. Now, perhaps you're wondering why we're out here in ships. Well, the answer is very simple. It's too dangerous on land. Imagine the islands of the atoll laid out like minutes on a slightly misshapen clock. 
Aluja Lab lights a few minutes before midnight towards the top, while the larger base islands of Perry and Inuitok lay towards the bottom, around five o'clock. The task force for Ivy was located out to sea, well south of the base islands, to be safely out of range of what was about to happen. The test islands for Mike are located at the top, or the northern sector, of Eniwetok Atoll. There are three main islands making up the test site. These are Alujalab, Teeter, and Bogan. In preparation for the experiment, Alujalab was cleared, enlarged, and connected to several other islands of the test site by a man-made causeway. In the early months, Alujalab was just another small naked island of the atoll. But by midsummer, it began to look like the thing it was selected for, a shot island. If you came ashore on the Lab that day, you would have first noticed a tall TV antenna that was used to monitor the device remotely. Next to it sat a large, dark, hangar-like building known as the cab. Actually, the cab, so-called because it houses the weapon, is not a cab at all, but a building set flush to the ground. It has all the earmarks of a common workshed. Inside, it looked like some kind of strange laboratory. A gigantic two-story tall steel casing with 12-inch thick walls was suspended on one side of the building, connected to tubes running out of it. The casing, nicknamed the sausage because of its shape, weighed over 80 tons, and inside of it were two different types of bombs sitting on top of each other. First, a traditional nuclear fusion device was placed on top, with a large store of liquid hydrogen underneath it. The Teller Ulam design on which the bomb was based theorized that the energy generated when the first stage was detonated, held in place by the casing, would be powerful enough to set off a chain reaction in the hydrogen underneath it. But what happens if you have to stop the firing mechanism, or can you stop it? We can stop it all right if we have to. We have a radio link direct to the firing panel on the shot cab. If we have to stop the shot, we simply push this button. Just a simple flick of the wrist, huh? That's right. But a lot of work goes down the drain. You understand we don't want to stop this thing unless it's absolutely essential. Yeah, I can understand that. The sausage was surrounded by scientific equipment and advanced cryogenic refrigeration required to keep the liquid hydrogen stable inside the casing. Even though this building and everything inside of it looked nothing like a bomb that could be launched or dropped on an enemy, the entire building was the weapon. It would be the first hydrogen bomb ever tested, codenamed Mike Shot. Around Aluja Lab was a mind-boggling array of weapon diagnostic and scientific instrumentation to measure the blast. The pipes leading directly from the sausage were called light pipes, they led out of the cab and along the causeways to a station on Bogan, the island furthest away from the blast. The idea was to transmit information on each stage of the device's detonation to a survivable recording location away from the fireball. Buoys were set out to collect scientific data. Puffs of smoke were fired into the air to measure the shockwave of the blast, and a thousand other measurements and experiments were taking place all throughout the atoll. Why was this happening? This was the early stage of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, and a nuclear arms race was developing between the two superpowers. 
On Monday, August 6, 1945, at 8.15 a.m., America dropped the first nuclear weapon against an enemy on Hiroshima, Japan, leading to the end of World War II and ushering the world into the atomic era. Just four years later, on August 29, 1949, the Soviets shocked the world by testing their own nuclear bomb. This increased the pressure to stay ahead of the Russians, leading to the development of a hydrogen bomb. President Harry S. Truman signaled this on January 31, 1950 by saying, it is part of my responsibility as Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces to see to it that our country is able to defend itself against any possible aggressor. Accordingly, I have directed the Atomic Energy Commission to continue its work on all forms of atomic weapons, including the so-called hydrogen or super bomb. Although counterintuitive to say the least, the concept of mutually assured destruction, or MAD, was a key strategy emerging in this new era of mega weapons. The theory was that neither country would dare launch a first strike if the retaliation would be just as deadly. In this way, the race to produce lethal weapons would ensure nuclear deterrence. Neither the United States nor Soviet Union would risk a direct, full-scale conflict if their nuclear capability neared parity. Dr. Alvin C. Graves, the head scientist on Mike's shot. We're not really sure what progress the Russians have made in this business of nuclear research. And so the only safe assumption to make is that they're interested in producing a fission bomb and use it as some sort of trigger mechanism for a hydrogen bomb. It's obvious we don't want them to have a hydrogen bomb before we do. And so time is urgent. Time is the thing we have to beat. Time bore witness to Alugilab's creation, and soon its devastation. Time is the real enemy. Imagine being part of the firing party sent to the island that morning to ensure the island is clear and to arm the bomb. So then, Dick, the firing party's big job is to see the last-minute details of arming and firing and to make sure that the shot island is secure. That's the broad brush of it, yes. I've been a member of firing parties before, but this was different somehow. A man standing as I stood on the outside of the building housing the mic device couldn't help but feel to sense the importance of this moment. Inside, a handful of men were making a final check, were arming a device which could be the key to a new era in atomic weaponeering. I don't know just how the others felt, but I felt small when I thought of the experiment being readied inside. This one test could take us out of the realm of kilotons into the fantastic world of megatons. And then, at H minus six hours, the job was finished. The mic device was on its own and ready. We all moved to take a final look at the gadget, which represents a year of intensive engineering. As we moved toward the pier, one couldn't get away from the feeling of being alone, of knowing you were the last to leave an island which might be shocked beyond human reentry. We see one last glimpse of it on camera. Illusion Lab. 
the tall TV antenna and the cab silhouetted against the lightning morning sky. Satisfied from the radiological standpoint, Commander Manor? Yes, sir. The situation is ideal since the entire fallout pattern is to the north of the inhabited islands. Thank you, Joan. The time is now H minus two minutes. You have a grandstand seat here to one of the most momentous events in the history of science. In less than a minute, you will see the most powerful explosion ever witnessed by human eyes. The blast will come out of the horizon just about there. And this is the significance of the moment. This is the first full-scale test of a hydrogen device. If the reaction goes, we're in the thermonuclear era. For the sake of all of us, and for the sake of our country, I know that you join me in wishing this expedition well. It is now 30 seconds to zero time. Put on goggles or turn away. Do not remove goggles or face first until 10 seconds after the first light. Father, four, three, two, one, T zero. Mike was detonated on Alujulab Island at 7.14 a.m. and 59.4 seconds six-tenths of a second early. The shot as witnessed aboard the various vessels at sea is not easily described. Accompanied by a brilliant light, the heat wave was felt immediately at distances of 30 to 35 miles. The tremendous fireball appearing on the horizon like the sun half-risen quickly expanded after a momentary hover and appeared to be approximately a mile in diameter before the cloud chamber effect and scud clouds partially obscured it from view, and a tremendous conventional mushroom-shaped cloud soon appeared, seemingly balanced on a wide, dirty stem. Around the base of the stem, there appeared to be a curtain of water, which soon dropped back. On camera, a visible shockwave rushes across the sea, and when it hits the camera, it shakes violently and cuts away to spectators on the command ship, lit by the glow of the atomic explosion. The pressure pulse and the reduced pressure period, as perceived by ear, was exceptionally long. The cloud ascended very rapidly and soon appeared, in the words of one observer, to have splashed against the topopause, or the boundary between the troposphere and the stratosphere. What's the verdict, term? About 12 megatons, Al. Nice going. This is the largest fireball ever produced. At its maximum, it measures about three and one quarter miles in diameter. Compared to the skyline of New York, this means that with the Empire State Building as zero point, the Mike Fireball would extend downtown to Washington Square and uptown to Central Park. In other words, the fireball alone would engulf about one quarter of the island of Manhattan. The cloud is still rising, 70,000 feet now, if the last estimate I heard is true. And up there at this moment at about 45,000 are the sampler aircraft. While the mushroom cloud was still broiling upward and drifting away from the island, 
specially fitted manned aircraft were dispatched to photograph it and actually fly into the cloud to collect samples. Experience has proven that manned aircraft are just as efficient and much less costly to put in the air than our drones for sample collecting. Samplers and F-84Gs were divided into groups with code names, red, white, and blue. One of the disadvantages of using jet fighters is their range. To handle this problem, KB-29 tankers, flying gas trucks, are in the air to refuel the jets on the way back from their sampling mission. But Red 3 and 4 had difficulty with their navigation aids and could not locate the tanker. Red 3 was successfully guided to Inuitok Island for an emergency landing. However, when Inuitok Tower gave Red 4 a second heading, at which time he gave his altitude as 19,000 feet, he indicated that his fuel gauges now read empty, even though his engine was still running. At 10,000 feet, he had the atoll in sight. At 5,000 feet, the pilot told the tower that he could not make the airstrip and that he planned to bail out when the plane dropped to 2,000 feet. The rescue chopper spotted the aircraft west of the airstrip. Then at 3,000 feet, he gave his final transmission. I have the helicopter in sight bailing out. The helicopter pilot observed the F-84G drop its wing tanks and possibly eject the cockpit canopy also. Red 4 flew into the water in a level glide, seemingly under a controlled crash landing. To increase their flying time inside the radioactive cloud, sampler pilots wore protective clothing. A loose shroud of lead glass fabric, eight plies thick, fit over the head and draped down the back, extending over the sides and front just below the knees of the pilots. It was fitted with quick-release snaps for rapid removal in the event of a bailout. Despite this, when the chopper arrived over the sinking plane three miles off Inuitok Island, only about one minute after it had gone into the water, they saw the F-84G had flipped over. The pilot was nowhere in sight. According to a declassified report, only a few men exceeded the maximum exposure of 3.9 Renchen during the entire mic shot experiment. This included a seven-man crew and an SA-16 search and rescue amphibious aircraft that knowingly chose to take the shortest path to the downed plane, flying through a fallout zone. The seven-man rescue crew received exposures of 10 to 17.8 Renchen. The pilot of Red 4, Jimmy Robinson, was never found. What this tremendous blast did to the atoll, nobody knows. Re-entry parties are leaving the Rendova now by helicopter. I can't go along, but you can, and see for yourselves through the eyes of the camera what has happened back on the atoll. Coming up on Bogon. The detection station on Bogon appears to be in good shape. No visible sign of plywood too. All test items seem to be swept clean. Ugelab is completely gone. Nothing there but water and what appears to be a deep crater. The island was gone. Alugelab had been completely vaporized, leaving nothing behind but a deep, water-filled crater to prove it was ever there. The 
The results of this tremendous power can be shown at the atoll. The crater is roughly a mile in diameter. In profile, the crater gradually slopes down to a maximum depth of some 175 feet, or equivalent to the height of a 17-story building. It can be safely assumed that there was complete annihilation within a radius of three miles, or out to and including all of Enjubi. There is an elephant in this realm. Aluja Lab was someone's home. No one knows for sure how long Inuitaka Atoll has been inhabited, some say as long as 1000 BC. In their own tradition, the people of the Atoll have always been there. We were there from the beginning, they say. In a report by the Department of Energy, Robert C. Kist observed of Inuitaka. Most of the research has been in the biological and physical sciences, and the sheer volume of it has tended to obscure a very important fact. In a wee talk, could only be used for nuclear and other research purposes only after the indigenous human populations had been moved elsewhere. Much less is known about the people than the flora, fauna, and physical properties of their atoll homeland. To do it justice, I will save the Odyssey of the Inuitakis for another episode. Our pipe-smoking host strolls along an empty beach at low tide. White breakers roll in the distance. A navy vessel on the horizon. Now that it's all over, I have sort of an inadequate feeling. There's so much more that could have been said. But then in a presentation of this kind, one can only hope to give the broad brushstroke. The men who told you the story, we're only able to pick out a few of the many. You get a feeling, even now, that nothing is really over. That this is a breathing spell, like a lull in battle before the next attack. The feeling is on this island, with the men here. Yes, the coral sands of Inuitaka Atoll have viewed events in the fall of 1952, which less than a year and a half before would have been colossal accomplishments. Today, they are calmly accepted. This is characteristic of the progress being made in the weapons development program. What is new today is old hat tomorrow. And of the day after tomorrow, who knows what these Pacific sands may see. There was once an island that for eons stood tall against the wind and waves. It was loved by someone, it seemed permanent. Then one day, in a single swift instant, the Lujalab slipped into history. This is The Island Podcast.